I'll just quickly uh, pray. I'll quickly pray. Yeah, Father, we just pray right now that your spirit, as it moves, will speak through the words that John has prepared for us this morning. Lord, we know that he's prepared those words in, his, in the spirit that you have placed in him. So yeah. we receive that, Lord. Bless him this morning, Father, as he shares. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tammy. Um, you'll be pleased to know I'm not using electronic help. Um, those of you that know me in, or know me at all know that me and electronic help do not go together. So we could have ended up anywhere. Um, I've also found out where my parameters are, where I can walk with still being in the camera, which is about to hear and hear, which for me is quite constricting. Um, nevertheless, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. It's a privilege to be able to speak this morning. And I trust and pray as we look at, at, at a take that I have on Good Friday, it will be uh, a, a blessing. Wasn't it fantastic last week? Last Sunday, nine people baptised. That's what it's all about. As Steve summed up the morning, you know, we're to make disciples of all nations, baptise them and teach them to obey. That's what last Sunday was about. And I, I don't know about you, but it's one of my favourite services of the church calendar, you know, to see people going on with the Lord, to see people committing themselves uh, to God in that way. I've entitled this morning, uh, from my perspective, is With Me in Mind. So, and I want you to get that phrase in your head, because a couple of times during the morning I'm going to ask you, who is it to do with? And this morning what I want to share with you is to do with what Jesus thinks of us. And it's with us in mind. And so remember that phrase, as I might ask you about it later on, with me in mind. I've also had to make an assumption because of time. My wife is on 20-minute on watch for me, so she will wave at me um, when, when, that, uh, when we're getting near that. I'm making an assumption that we're all agreed that the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's misdemeanors messed up the world. Are we happy with that? That's a pretty good theological... And Paul Veal's not here to put me right, but anyway, we're going to agree it anyway. We're going to agree the fact that Adam and Eve messed, messed it up and what we're talking about over this weekend is the biggest event in history. Forget Ukraine, although we can't. Forget all other aspects of history. But what we're remembering and what we're talking about is the biggest event in history. And somebody asked me the other day when I was talking to them, so, so how do you think people are coming out of COVID and everything? And I just, it was a phrase that surprised me when I said it, but I thought, hmm, okay, it's probably not too bad. And I just said, that I think they're cautiously sleepy. And I think the world is cautiously sleepy as to how we're coming out of what we've been thrust into. And I suppose the challenge for us as church is that we don't need to be cautiously sleepy because we have a message which is awesome, absolutely awesome. And I have two scriptures that I want to base what I want to share on uh, this morning, and I think they, they should pop up here, uh, assuming that my, oh, my technician's on, on the ball, excellent stuff. And they are these two things. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. This is the reason, if you like, for where we are today. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. And the first point I want to make is you 
are the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down, and the whole principle of sitting down was a finished job, finished work. When you sat down in God's presence, it was done. And he sat down at the right right hand of the throne of God. So that was the reason, and then the purpose, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So this plan that we are celebrating this weekend was set before the world was created. Because God knew that Adam and Eve would mess up, there'd be all the stuff that we've, we've encountered, and there would have to be a solution to it. And this is the reason. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be homely, holy and blameless in his sight. And the key words there are in his sight, not ours, not the world's, not the devil's, in his sight. So again, get those two thoughts in your head. He endured the cross. Why? Because we were the joy set before him so that we might present it as he sees us, not as we see ourselves. It fascinates me also that we we call Good Friday Good Friday because it wasn't very good for Jesus, was it? (laughs) But the whole weekend is good and we get the benefit of that. But as we begin to think about what Jesus went through, particularly on the 24, 36 hours before the cross, and well, sorry, before the resurrection, then we'll, we'll understand why it was Good Friday. But my hope this morning is that, it, that whatever you pick up from this morning will refresh, reignite maybe, invigorate, or even for the first time bring you to that point of thinking, That's what it's all about. That's what I need. That he might restore our love so that we won't be cautiously sleepy, but we'll be stirred and on fire. That's the hope. That's my prayer this morning. And as we look through the the events of those those hours before the Resurrection Sunday, leading up to to Jesus' death, we see an incredible catalogue of physical suffering, mental and psychological suffering, spiritual suffering that Jesus had to go through, the temptations that were there as well. Because the whole point, I believe, of of the the events leading up to Jesus' death was to distract him, put him off, deflect him from the purpose that had already been set. That, they, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had agreed before the creation of the world that that's what was going to happen and that's how it needs to be put right. And everything in those, particularly in those last few hours, was geared up to put him off. So he did and set out to do everything that was, that was there with me in mind. And let's just go back a little bit to Luke 4. And if you remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he went through several um, challenges, went through several temptations. And right at the end of, of that passage in Luke 4, there's a little phrase that says, and the devil left him for a more opportune moment. I believe as we start in Gethsemane, this is the beginning of that more opportune moment. 
Because in Jesus' humanity, he would have had plenty of opportunity to say, I don't want to do this. I'm not going that way. And there's some fascinating parts to the story that I just want to focus in on. I've taken, they're all scripturally referenced, and if you want all the references, I can give you them all. But I'm just going to make some quotes out of them. But basically, if you want to look it up, it's, it's, it's Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. If you put those four together, I've got a summary of that just here. And Gethsemane, for me, is one of the most fascinating places. They've just had the Last Supper. He's just taught them how to serve one another and do all those things, and they go off to pray. And I don't know what they'd either ate or drunk, but most of the others, they just could not cope. Jesus goes off to pray, and they all fall asleep. Well, that's really encouraging, isn't it, when you think, let's go and have a prayer meeting, and the rest of them all fall asleep. That's a really good start to the the process of, of moving on from here. And it says in Matthew's account that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled and sorrowed to the point of death. Now, I can't imagine... I mean, has any ever, anybody ever been anxious? Yeah. Has anybody ever been really anxious? Yeah. Has that caused you joyful thoughts? No. But it says here that Jesus was in, in distress and trouble to the point of death. In Luke's account, now Luke was interesting because he was a doctor and he could spot things that some of the others couldn't. But he says, uh, there's a point in Gethsemane as well where Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, you know, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And then it goes on to say, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And Luke, the doctor, spots it and he's the only one that writes about that. But such was the anguish, and apparently it can happen. I'm, I'm not a medic. But I'm going to try and pronounce a word that is medical. It's, it's like hematology, all right? So that's the base of it, because it's to do with blood. But it says in the, in the, in the um, medical world, it's, it's hematohydrosis. Apparently it's a rare condition where you are so anxious, so pressured, that the, the, the blood vessels in the, on, the, on your skin burst and you start to sweat blood. And it only ever happens very, 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 very rarely. But that's medically what Jesus was going through. Such was the angst and the concern and the pressure and all the things that were mounting up against him caused him to react in that way. And I want us to grab hold of that, is, is the intensity of what he went through. Because Jesus did this, the phrase, with me in mind. My my first reaction to that is, wow. If that doesn't get hold of us, because I'm sure in, in, in Gethsemane, the devil's going, oh, it's going to hurt. Oh, you're not going to, it's not going to be good. And all the things, other things I've got to lay on you, best thing to do is give in. Is, is put it aside. Don't do it. And yet Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Why? For the joy set before him, which is us. 
Let's move on then. Let's move on to Jesus' arrest. And a couple of things around that. First of all, he was betrayed by a member of the group. That's always encouraging, isn't it? You've, you've worked with somebody for three years. They're, they're good friends in theory. And the one that betrays you is one of your group. The treasurer, actually. He was the one that looked after the money. And he decided that he, could, he, he was going to betray Jesus, even when he'd already had that pointed out in the Last Supper. And I love this bit in, in the arrest sequence. I think it's in the John ref, uh, version of it. It says, they stepped forward to arrest him, and Jesus said, it's me, and they all fall down. Those that came to arrest him fell down. Because Jesus was in control of the power situation. In one sense, if it had been me, I'd have thought, that's got them. If they come near me again, I'll zap them again and they'll go away. No, Jesus displayed his power and then submitted it to the will of the Father. They step forward to arrest him. They can't cope. Such is the, the, the glory and, and the power within him. They fall to the ground. And it just, again, it expresses to me how much Jesus was prepared to do to get me into that joy. He gave up his, his godly power in his humanity and sub he submitted himself. They didn't take it. He submitted himself. They treated him like a common thief. Peter, bless him, he ought to have had red hair like, like John and James, but he didn't. But he chopped off a bloke's ear. One of the guys that came to arrest him, for some, for some reason, I don't know why particularly, Peter was carrying a sword. Um, bit of a mystery, but there you go. It, the gospel says that's what he was doing. And he whacks this bloke, misses his head completely, but chops his ear off. Either says that Peter wasn't very good with a sword or it was... You know, you can work into it what you like. But anyway, there's, there's this bloke with, a, with an ear. And if you ever had an ear cut, you know that it, it bleeds an awful lot. And you can bleed out if, you, if your ear is not um, secured quickly. And even in that, the guy chop, Peter chops the guy's ear off, Malchus's ear. And Jesus picks it up and says, be healed. Even at that point, he's displaying what he is giving up on our behalf. Luke 22 says it lovely. He says it, it just says that he healed him. Like, just like any other piece of cake. And in one sense, in one sense, it's what Jesus was at. But we're at this point where he's having to submit all of, all of who he was in order for us to have access to him. And then on top of that, of course, bless him, Peter, having chopped the bloke's ear off, then goes off to, and denies him three times. Yeah, yeah, with Peter, sometimes you just think, oh, dear, he's hard work. If you were discipling him, you know, if, if Steve and Tammy were discipling him, you'd be thinking, oh, Peter, come here. I need to have a chat with you because things aren't quite balanced here. And, yeah, we're a bit like that sometimes, aren't we? We do things on the spur of the moment and get it a bit wrong and then mess up. And But God... Um, you know, he looks after him. We know the story of, of Peter with the denial. In the end, he restores him later in the whole saga. So Jesus was arrested and disowned. 
treated like a common thief. But Jesus did this with me in mind. And then we come to various accounts of Jesus being taunted and mocked, flogged. And there are huge temptations. I'm sure the enemy would have encouraged, if you like. There's one point where the guards blindfold him. They began mocking him, spitting at him, beating him, tempting him to, amuse his, to abuse his heavenly authority. Because they said to him, who just hit you? Prophesy, who just hit, hit you? They knew his authority. They knew his power. But they were tempting him to use it wrongly. Which is what the enemy does, both to Jesus all through this story, but to us on a regular basis. To use sometimes what we have in a wrong way. And this was the same temptation that, that the devil had brought to Jesus in, in the wilderness. Was The three temptations were to get him to deny his God-given, godly authority and to use it wrongly. And all through this whole story, that's part of what I believe the enemy is trying to do, is get Jesus to step aside from the plan that was made in order to make it easier for himself so that we would not then be able to come into the joy that we are, that's been opened to us. They stripped him and humiliated him. The crown of thorns, again, I looked at some pictures of, the, of crowns of thorns. I don't know if you ever looked at the pictures, but they are how vicious. I wrote down here, and after I wrote it the first time, I thought I'd better change it. Because it, when I looked at them, most of the crowns have, a crown of thorns is, was woven together, and it had thorns about two inches long. And as I wrote it down, I thought, some people go, what's two inches? That's five centimetres to the younger ones. They're long, it's about that big. And it was rammed on his head. Rammed on his head to mock the authority, the kingly authority, that actually was being recognised. Because if you remember, on the cross it said, King of the Jews. People recognised that he had authority and they were mocking the fact that that's what Jesus stood for. I can't imagine. I, I, I had a bit of a traumatic experience on Wednesday this week. I've been having some trouble with some of my fingers. They've been getting stiff and what have you. And so the, we, we prayed and we haven't quite seen a result yet. But I went to see the specialist on Wednesday. And I had three injections in my hands. And they flipping hurt. I don't know if you ever had one. I had, had one straight up the ring finger and one into this thumb and one into that thumb. And the lady, one of the ladies in the... In the um, in the theatre, because you have to, one is done under x-ray and they get the needle right in the hole wherever it's meant to go. She said, you can hold my hand if you like. I said, I don't think you want to do that. No, she said, it'll be fine. So he stuck this needle in my hand. My knee came up to my chin because it was so painful. I squeezed her hand. And she, she said, don't strain against me. Uh, what? And he stuck the needle in and anyway, it went in. And then the lady leaned over to me and said, um, can we not do that next time? <laughs> because I think I nearly crushed her hand. It hurt like what's it. 
And then it, it made me think, in, in the light of what I'm speaking on this morning, it made me think, what would it have been like to have nails? Not just a needle. This was like the small needle that you've, you know, lithocaine or whatever, I don't know what they, that's the dentist use, it was that sort of small needle. But it But I've got some benefit from it. My thumbs are beginning to work again. So I praise God for that. But it was just, a, you know, just understanding something of the pain that Jesus went through. Then Jesus went on trial twice. One with Herod, one with Pilate. The kangaroo caught on one side and a bit of a hesitant court on the other. Herod and all his mates, they were trying to get Jesus out the way. And as we know, that the total injustice of that was that Barabbas was saved and not Jesus. Pilate, he was a bit more hesitant, and his wife was even more hesitant, because she says, I don't think he's guilty. You want to be careful here. And yet it would be strange in the fact that the Roman, a Roman um, representative had an opportunity to get somebody who was causing trouble in the province, and yet he's the one that says, whoa, easy. And he tried to wash his hands of the whole thing. But in the end, he gave him up to be crucified. And all that we've been through so far, the worst is yet to come. But Jesus did this with me in mind. Crucifixion was one of the most painful deaths that you could encounter. And if you look at our word excru excruciating, comes out of ex being Latin for outside, and the first bit of it is crucifixion. So it's coming out of crucifixion. That's where our word excruciating comes from. It's gruesome, it was humiliating. It was supposedly a very slow death. You could have been on the cross for two or three days trying to pull yourself up to breathe, to slump down again, to pull yourself up again, to breathe, because of the panic of dying. And yet, Tammy quoted one of the, the statements from the cross, and I want to just highlight a couple. And apparently that crossbar that Jesus was... Uh, meant to have carried, in the end Simon of Cyrene carried, it could weigh a hundred pounds. Forty kilos, is that? I don't know. Two and a bit, yeah. Something at 40, 45 pound, uh, kilos, a hundred pounds. And because of all the stuff that had gone on before, normally you would carry your own cross to the crucifixion area. But Jesus was so weak, out of all the other stuff that had gone on, the beating, the, the flogging, the, the crowns, the, the punching, the spitting, all of that, Jesus was unable in his humanity, to carry the cross. And so Simon had to carry it for him. We get to that point where Jesus is nailed to the cross. And again, it's beyond imagination. I, I, I can't even get my head to even think about it in the sense that I know what, just in a very small way, what happened on Wednesday compared to what Jesus went through. is just like... But the first thing we see that Jesus says on the cross is, Father, forgive them. So they do not know what they are doing. He knew what was going on. They didn't. This was part of the plan. 
This was the, the ultimate plan that had been set aside by God, the Holy, and, uh, Holy Spirit and Jesus. That's what had been set aside. And so he was able to say that because it's all in his nature to fulfill the will of God. And then the other two other things. One, he says, it is finished. And when he, when he says it, it is finished, it was far too quick. The Romans were, were shocked that he died so quickly. But the key to that death, when he says it is finished, i.e. the plan has been fulfilled, Father, Holy Spirit, what we talked about, we've done it. And we've got the rest of it to unfold, which Dan has the privilege of speaking on on Sunday. And, and in one sense, that's the better bit of of the Easter story. But this is so important that we grasp what is in this. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus didn't die because the Romans crucified him. Jesus died because he gave up his life. And that is crucial for us to get hold of that. He wasn't slaughtered. He wasn't crucified in the sense of a common thief or whatever. He died because he chose to die, because that was the plan that had been set up in order to redeem us from all the misdemeanors of Adam and Eve and all the, the bad stuff and all the rubbish that's come down through those generations. This was the crit critical moment in history. Jesus comm commended his spirit to, to Father. He laid down his life. It was not taken for him. It was all part of the plan. And Jesus did this with me in mind. And that's why I want to try and personalise it this morning. It's not for us. It's not for the world. Well, it is. But I actually want to bring it down to a place where it's for me. It's for you. It's for us as individuals that we can draw the strength from what Jesus has done. 2 Corinthians 14 says, I haven't got it on a slide, but I've got it here and I'll read it because I, I still use my old Bible. Do you notice that? I know it's un unforgiven here, but never mind. Um, yes, having cancelled the written code, so all the law of the Old Testament, he's cancelled that. That's the first thing that we see in, 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 in Colossians 2. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations, and there were a whole load of them, it was against, that was against us, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. All the attempts, if you like, to cover up all the stuff that had gone on before, it was dealt with here. And I've got two quotes, which I think might just help us get hold of it. I can't attribute them, and none of them are made by N.T. Wright. Okay? As far as I know. I might be, I might be proven wrong. To those you love deeply... You want to give them the best gift. And that's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. Isn't it lovely when you give somebody a birthday present and they go, yes, absolutely spot on. But what about Jesus? He couldn't have given us more. He wanted to give us the best gift. And this is the second thing. This is where I want to come back to uh, one of my early scriptures, which is where it talks about in his sight. His approval of you was there before any of your good or bad actions took place. 
You want to just meditate on that for a second. I've been given the the eagle eye has given me the, the tap. His approval of you was there before any of your good or bad actions took place because you are part of the joy set before him. And that was set before the foundation of the world. And nothing that we can reflect on can change that. And so for me, it deals with things like an allegation from the devil that you're not good enough. An accusation from somebody else who says, well, that was rubbish. Because actually, if I accept what other people say of me or observations that people make of me, I'm not buying into the fact that actually I'm forgiven. Period. End of. Unchangeable. Part of the plan of salvation. So when an allegation is made of me, I am learning slowly. I've spent many a year trying to do it a different way, but I'm learning slowly to be able to reflect and say, well, Lord, because of what you've done, that allegation can't stick. And in one sense, and I'm, please hear me, I, I can be a bit, not irreverent, but I don't mean it like that, but in one sense, I've got Teflon skin. Nothing can stick because of what Jesus has done. If I have accepted Jesus as my saviour, then I become non-stick. Because the enemy can't stick things to me and say, ha ha. Now, that doesn't mean to say I, I get everything right. Please hear me. But actually, if we see us as the way God sees us, that's in his sight through the, through the perspective of Jesus, nothing sticks. That doesn't give us license to go and live how we like and do whatever we like. Actually, it's totally the opposite. It makes it, what is it Paul says, the love of God constrains us to live our life along his lines. And that's how our reaction should be. So I close with this thought. And it struck me this week that so, so often, I get it slightly wrong, but I believe that because of what Jesus has done in me and for me, as an individual, I am now invited to work with him, not for him. If I work for him, it's almost as though I'm expecting a reward. I'm, I'm working for wages. And actually the truth is totally the opposite. He invites me because he sees me as he sees me, not how I see me, to work with him in the kingdom, not for him in the kingdom. Let's sum it up with a final verse. He thought of everything. This is from the message. Provided everything we could possibly need. Letting us in on his own plan, on, on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it out. He set it all out before us in Christ. A long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven everything on planet Earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you, you did all, you, you, you fulfilled the plan that you made with the Father with me in mind. 
As much as I love my brothers and sisters here, Lord, but you did it with me in mind. Lord, I trust that we might all get that level of appreciation of what you've done to the point where we, it changes us in our attitude, that we are then invited by you to work with you, not for you. In Jesus' name.